This episode of the Glossy Beauty Podcast is sponsored by Shopify Plus. From first pop of color to retail floor, you need a commerce platform to help you scale at the speed of your ideas. That's why over 5,000 of the world's fastest growing beauty brands like ColourPop, Lily Lashes, and Kylie Cosmetics rely on Shopify Plus to sell to their customers around the world. You'll be able to go wherever your customers are from New York to Instagram, and they'll make sure you look brilliant in every shade from pop-up shop to mobile. Learn more about Shopify Plus at shopify.com beauty. Hello, and welcome to the Glossy Beauty Podcast, our weekly show where we discuss the future of the beauty and wellness industries with the people who know them best. I'm your host, Priya Rao, beauty editor at Glossy. And today's guest is Rich Gersten, a partner at Tengram Capital Partners. Rich has been investing in beauty companies for 20 years, and his current portfolio includes brands like Revive and Lime Crime. In this episode, Rich discusses why there is so much money in beauty right now, what he looks for when he's investing, and why wellness is no longer a differentiator in beauty. Hope you enjoy the episode. Today on the Glossy Beauty Podcast, we have Rich Gersten, a partner at Tenegram Capital Partners, whose portfolio includes Revive, Alginist, and Lime Crime. Thank you for being here, Rich. Thanks for having me. So, Rich, to get started, tell us a little bit about your beauty background. I'm not sure if you were a beauty junkie yourself, but how did you find yourself in this space? Yeah, my background is much more classically trained investor. Uh, started as a commercial banker and then went into private equity investing right out of business school and had no operating background, no background in beauty whatsoever. Um, about 20 years ago, um, I started looking at the industry because as an investor, it had lots of interesting characteristics that made it interesting. So if you think about the beauty industry, it's incredibly large. Uh, it grows at high rates, for, especially for an industry that large. Um, it's incredibly fragmented, which means no one has dominant market share and indie brands are taking share from large brands consistently, um, happening even more today probably than then. But that was always a fundamental attribute or characteristic of the industry. Um, the margins tend to be good. And there was a rich, what I'll call exit M&A market. So what does that mean? That means if you own something, there were numerous buyers for it. Uh, and in those days, 15, 20 years ago, it was largely the beauty companies that you relied on to take you out. Um, and so as an investor, uh, lots of small companies took share and lots of buyers for him. So at a very high level, thought it made sense uh, from an investment perspective. Um, I was at a firm at the time called North Castle Partners that was kind of an early mover in consumer investing and, and focused on health and wellness and aging trends and how companies could benefit from it. And we had identified beauty and personal care as a sector that would be of interest to us. Um, and so I started focusing on it in the early 2000s. And in 2002, I made my first investment in the space in uh, a business called Avalon Natural Products, which had two brands at the time, Avalon Organics and Alba, which were natural and organic personal care brands. Think about that. 17 years ago, and everybody talks about clean and natural now, I guess in some respects ahead of my time. Um, but the first investment I made was in natural and organic personal care brands, Avalon and Alba. And back then, they were sold in kind of health food stores. Whole Foods would be your big account. Beauty retailers didn't cover it at all. And we had looked at that uh, space because at Northcastle, we had done a lot in the natural products industry, food, beverage, vitamins, and supplements. And we saw what was happening is these brands would go from specialty stores to conventional distribution. And we thought, 
biologically, the same thing could happen in beauty and personal care. We even looked at cleaning products, things like seventh generation would be examples. And so we saw this migration of these natural brands into conventional channels and had met the founders of Avalon and Alba in 2002. So that was the first investment that we made. Um, in 2004, I made another investment in a brand called DDF, which at the time was one of the first doctor skincare brands. Again, a prevalence of them now, but back then there was um, a small handful and met the founders of that business in 2001. Uh, they were a little too small for Northcastle at the time, but in 2004 they grew and they kind of grew into our mandate and completed that second investment in, in the spring of 2004. Um, and then a decision was made, focus, you know, spend half your time focusing on the space, build our brand, build your knowledge and network. It's going to have value at some point. Um, and so I spent roughly half my time back then focused on beauty and personal care and did other consumer industries as well. But that became a kind of primary focus. If you think about majors and minors, that was, I was a major in beauty and I minored in other consumer categories. Um, and then in 2006, made a third investment in a business called Glow Minerals, which was a professional channel, mineral-based cosmetics and skincare brand. Um, and so that's how I got started with those three investments at Northcastle and uh, have been doing it ever since. Rich, how did you kind of educate yourself knowing that you weren't the typical beauty customer, you weren't the shopper that were buying these brands? How did you kind of get to know the space? I think just through repetition. I mean, at the, it, you know, I look at deals now, now not so much, but, you know, 10 years ago, I would look at a potential deal and it wasn't in a business or a category that I knew very well. And therefore, it became very hard for me to get to yes because I just didn't feel knowledgeable and smart. And I'm sure in those early days when I was evaluating those beauty investments, I had similar issues and you just, you know, the investment business has a lot of gut and subjectivity to it. And you obviously do the financial diligence, the consumer diligence, you understand the market characteristics, but the more you do something, the easier it becomes. And so I think there's a benefit of focus. And the reason I spend so much time in the space now is I think it makes me better both smarter as an investor because it's harder to fool me. Um, but also, secondly, part of our pitch is to partner with founders as a value-added partner. And most private equity firms will say they're value-added investors. And that just doesn't mean much, you know, because everybody says it. you got to give examples. But I think if you've been doing enough in a space for a long time, then your ability to understand what could go wrong, what needs to happen to go right. Because at the end of the day, there's pattern recognition in the investing business. You know, what works here should work somewhere else. And what's failed there likely could fail somewhere else. And so you just bottle those experiences and then you bring them to bear on the next one you look at. So early on, not so easy. I think looking at a consumer business is similar, right? You have a product, a branded product business. There's a couple of ways to grow it. You find new distribution to bring it to. You launch new products or you make your existing distribution more productive. That's the only way to grow revenues last time I checked. And that holds true for all types of categories. And so you apply that consumer products discipline to evaluating. But the nuances of investing in a particular industry, I think, build over time. You don't have that right away. When you talk about gut, what was your gut telling you about Avalon and Alba back in 2002? Yeah, I mean, if you looked, if you looked at the health food store channel for distribution in, in beauty and personal care, it was a hot mess. I mean, there, there were so many brands. Most of the packaging, honestly, was subpar. No one was telling the story as to why theirs was different. They were just natural brands. So there was no traditional brand storytelling going on. The, um, the formulas, in some cases, were mediocre because in those days, uh, people compromised product efficacy for clean formulas. It, 
technologies are much better today where you can get both at the same time. But back then it was hard. Avalon and Alba had interesting uh, product. They had exceptional product. They had founders that did an amazing job creating brand story and packaging that clearly stood out on the shelf. And we fundamentally believed that their market share, which was leading uh, in many categories in the health food store channel, could translate to other more conventional, larger channels. And so that's the playbook we ran. Talk to us a little bit about what Tengram does when you are interested in a company and then when you kind of come to play and they're part of your portfolio. Yeah, it's there's clearly no one size fits all and every brand, every company has different needs. It, it typically for us starts with cultivating a relationship with the founder. You know, we we spend so much time meeting and evaluating brands, many of which, like the DDF example I gave earlier on, are just too small. Right. So we build relationships. We try to, you know, show that we can be good partners if and when that opportunity arises. And um, and you build those relationships and hopefully you parlay that into an investment opportunity at one point. Um, the day we invest and in our case, we almost always take control. Doesn't have to be, but we we typically own a majority. Um, and we do that because there's lots of things that we believe need to get done and we want to be in charge of doing that. So where do I personally spend my time? It's a lot of relationship with founder. Uh, it's a lot of recruiting because typically when we invest in these founder brands, there's a lack of, I hate to use the term professional management because it implies the people there are not professional when we invest, but the capabilities and skill sets are different taking a brand from zero to 10 million then going from 15 to 100 or 50. And so we spend a lot of time networking and meeting with executives. Most of the brands we've invested in at Tengram, we've hired new CEOs and many of those CEOs direct reports. None of them were there the day we invest. So it's a lot of heavy lifting and we get involved in helping to make sure we can identify the right talent, recruit that right talent and keep them incented once we once we buy the business. Um, we'll also be highly involved in distribution discussions. So we, we think we know where our brand should trade from a positioning perspective and we have relationships with many retailers that can help foster those conversations. Um, and so we do what we can to make sure that bad distribution decisions aren't made. Uh, and then we'll spend a fair amount of time really trying to understand the brand story, how we better tell it, what medium should we tell it in. Obviously, the world's changed social versus print historically and other means. And so we just try to leverage the collective experiences we have where something's worked well for one, we try to bring that to bear on others. And the playbook is quite similar across them. If the you know if the product categories may be different, but the distribution channels are likely the same given where we focus and what makes them successful in those distribution channels is also the same. Rich, what about the brand founders really strikes you? You know, we hear that a lot in beauty today. I'm a brand founder. I'm a brand founder. Like everybody has a personal story to tell. How do you kind of cut through the noise? Yeah, I think the challenge for us as investors is how do you separate the founder from the brand, right? Because if the brand at the end of the day is all about the founder, it's too risky for us as investors because um, we have to sell it someday. And if for whatever reason the founder is not involved anymore or the founder doesn't like who the potential buyer of the business is, those things can happen. We try to tap into what the founder brings to the table that makes the brand and the business so special, but try to really create a brand story on its own that touches on what the founder has done and what the founder has created, but but really try and create a brand story that's not just about a single person, but about a brand, because the brand has to live far beyond the years of, of any human being. And so when the founder is no longer with the business, the brand still has to mean something and the story has to be consistent. So uh, I, in my experience, founders are tremendous product people. you know, And, and I think when you think about investing in the category, it all starts with product. 
product. If a brand has bad product, no one comes back to buy it. They may try it if the marketing is great uh, or if the value is great from a price perspective, but if it's, if it's low quality product, they don't come back. And so our job is to identify brands that we think have exceptional product to start because that's the price of admission. You don't have good product, you have no business. And then we try to marry that brand story to that great product and then try to marry the uh, capabilities of a professional and experienced organization to both of those things. And so as an investor, what we focus on is get the brand part right, get the team part right. One without the other may not be so good an outcome. You get both of them right, things tend to work as investors. So, And the founder's part of that team, um, but usually in a less operational role and usually more in the role that they enjoy playing as opposed to trying to run the whole, the whole business day to day. So much of the trends today are around founders, though, and founder stories, whether it's Emily Weiss at Glossier or Kylie at Kylie Cosmetics or Tiffany Masterson at Drunk Elephant. What do you think that says about the overall industry? Well, I think, listen, these brands get created, and they get created by founders, definition of the word. And you, you referenced Tiffany, but the brand's Drunk Elephant, and Drunk Elephant means something to consumers. And part of what makes Drunk Elephant so interesting is the story the brand name, the packaging, it's the collection of attributes that make it so interesting. And Tiffany's part of that story, but not the whole story. And I think that's that's the key when, when we invest, is we try to find um, a brand story that's just not singularly focused on an individual, but that can reside on its own. But the founder is an important part of what we do, and most of the investments um, that we invest in tend to have a founder um, at the time we invest. Do many of them stay? Yeah. You know, they stay, but often um, in different roles. So the, the, it could go to a active board level role and out of the day to day. It could be very focused on product development because that's the passion. You know, in the case of Laura Geller, which is a brand we own, Laura was the on-air spokesperson, and no one was better at it. And that's what she loved to do, and so that's what she focused on. She was involved early on in the product ideation, and then sold the product on air, um, and that was her role. The day-to-day business for her was not something that she needed to spend time on because we built a a wonderful team around that. Um, And so we try to identify, and this is before you invest, right? I mean, part of the conversations that go on prior to investing is what do you love to do and can we create something that allows you to do that while allows us to bring other people in to do the stuff you know, that's that's more of a nuisance or not in the day-to-day of, of being fun. So it's a, it's a combination of finding the right role and the right roles and responsibilities for every member of the team. We'll be right back. The success of your business should never be limited by the commerce platform you run on. That's where Shopify Plus comes in. Whether you're kicking off an exclusive flash sale or an epic product drop, you'll be able to process thousands of transactions a minute without worrying about broken carts or crash checkouts. The new face of beauty powers your business with speed, scalability, and grace. Join over 5,000 brands on Shopify Plus at shopify.com slash beauty. Hey, Glossy listeners. My name is Gianna Cappadona, producer here at Glossy, and I'm here to talk to you about episode three of our mini-series, Glossy Trend Watch Streetwear Edition. For this episode, we are joined by StockX's Josh Luber as he discusses the resale market for streetwear and the convergence of the primary and secondary markets. You can catch every episode of Glossy Trend Watch right here in the Glossy podcast feed. To stay up to date with the latest podcast from Glossy, be sure to subscribe and leave us any feedback you have. Now, back to the episode. Rich, so many of the brands in your portfolio are very different. Lime Crime um, is, you know, a fast beauty brand, very millennial and Gen Z centric. Um, Algenist is, you know, 
a growing brand right now. Talk to us a little bit about why those were interesting investments for you. I, you know, we we tend to be more opportunistic, right? So, you know, I could identify or predict the next great trend and then try and find a brand that takes advantage of that. And we do some of that, but a lot of people also do that. Um, I think we've developed a capability that's very operational that allows us to do, I think, more complex, uh, I'll even call them hairier types of transactions because our knowledge of the space is so deep that we kind of know what to do and we know how to you know dust off the hair so to speak or remove the hair um, and make it something that's more attractive more valuable so in the case of of Algenist, it was a brand that was part of another business that's parent company it wasn't core to what they did but they had a technology that they created as part of their core business that ended up being the patented and primary ingredient in the algenist products and so they didn't have the skill sets to build a beauty branded business it wasn't their core business but there was a jewel of a brand and some unique technology in there that we thought could be exploited and so we carved it out of its parent company and then built a team around it revive was even more complicated review. We bought the inventory and the trademarks. We didn't even buy a company. It was embedded within Shiseido's organization with not a single executive working on it full time. And so we saw a, a brand there that was 20 years old, 10 years an orphan, hadn't been managed by anybody in the past 10 years, was reliant on luxury department store distribution, which was declining and wasn't dead. I mean, the investment thesis there was the brand should have been dead and wasn't. And so if we put a real good team around that brand and stood up an organization, not only could we create value by creating a company which didn't really exist and make it transactable for someone else in the future, but put a grossly overqualified team in charge of it to run it. Um, and that was a business that was down 30% um, in the six months of 2017 as we were evaluating the opportunity and we finished 2018 up almost 40% uh, with no new distribution. So again, if you get the right team with the right brand with exceptional product, um, and in this case, just having a team focus on it, um, good things will happen. Lime Crime, uh, equally interesting, you know, direct to consumer, digitally native brand, three and a half million Instagram followers, but a lot of negative controversy around the founder, um, some of the business practices that were uh, employed prior to our involvement. And that spooked some people, but we knew that brand had unique personality, had value as a direct to consumer brand and had value in its social following. It's a top 15 EMV or media value brand every month in the tribe data. We know that has value. And so we just need to tap in and exploit that value. We also knew there was a chance that that particular brand to grow wholesale distribution because it's primarily an e-commerce direct to consumer brand. And most retailers come inbound to the brand asking to carry it. So it's got some scarcity value from an access perspective. And so all very different types of businesses, all somewhat opportunistic for us in terms of, of, of our ability to invest and add value but running similar playbooks across all three of them. And so while they may be focused on different consumers, they may be different categories and different price points, what we have to do to make them successful is honestly the same across all three. And so we look for those types of opportunities where we think we might be able to get some value because of the complexity of it, but because of our knowledge and experience, we know what to do. We can create value once we own it. So that's how we pursue it. Rich, you uh, mentioned distribution quite a bit with Lime Crime and also with Revive. Talk to us a little bit about what you're seeing there, because so many brands right now are talking about you know, being digitally native only. Yeah. So many are now talking about being omni-channel, whatever that means. What is your approach? Omni-channel means just being wherever you need to be for a consumer to access you. 
uh, it could be called multi-channel as it was five years ago, omni-sexier. Um, <laughs> but the distribution question is an important one for us, and it's the one we get very involved with. And I think there different retailers bring different things to the table as partners for you. Um, I think when we look at a business, um, direct-to-consumer only is very interesting, but it does, in our opinion, max out or, or peak out in terms of its scale, unless you want to do physical retail, mono-brand, your own stores. Uh, but online, to continue to scale at the customer acquisition costs get very expensive, and ultimately, I do think you can tap out, which is why lots of brands, including Kylie, have pursued retail distribution and was part of our, our Lime Crime thesis. Although we do see, and it's not to be unexpected, as you open up new distribution, your direct business does get challenged. You know, people who had to come to you now can go to Ulta for in the case of Lime Crime and buy it. And so that obviously how you, the goal is to grow the overall pie, realizing that you might have some cannibalization as you expand distribution. But I, I, we're believers that brands should be omni-channel, to use the word. They they should have a strong relationship with their consumer. They, sh- they should continue to exploit that. They should continue to increase it as a percentage of its total sales. But to, to not think you need to be in retail distribution, especially in beauty, um, where it's a touch and feel uh, business and often an impulse uh, purchase for some, we think there's an opportunity being left on the table. And when you look at the data, and it's not counterintuitive, fragrance and makeup don't penetrate as deep online as skincare and hair care, which is obvious, right? Fragrance, you want to smell it before you buy it. Um, and makeup, you want to see what the shade looks like before you buy it. Um, skincare and hair care, much more replenishment items um, and therefore penetrate higher. So we think about that too. We think about what what is the optimal penetration and distribution given the category. Talk to us a little bit about customer data because a lot of these digitally native brands are so you know, hellbent rather on you know, owning that data, knowing that, and saying that they're not getting that information from Sephora or mm-hmm. Ulta. How do you kind of push a brand like a Lime Crime to even consider this? Yeah, it's it's again. What what's your goal? How big do you want it to be? What is it? What is what is the business you invest in look like five years from now? Um, and of course, you'd love to have that relationship with your consumer, and you'd love to talk to them and communicate with them and help them have you innovate and remind them when they're when they're past due on replenishing based on the time that's spent. And so you do that with the data that you have, and it's one of the advantages you know direct brands have is the ability to build that relationship with the consumer. Um, but in doing so, you may be leaving lots of other opportunities on the table. Um, and thus, you broaden your reach and distribution. And yeah, for those people, you may not know who's buying you, but they may come to your website. They may sign up. They may end up in your database, even if they don't purchase from you, and then you can market to them. So um, I think lots of brands are figuring out ways to grow their database because it gives them multiple touch points and opportunities to be able to market to them and communicate with them. So it's critical. You can find beauty and personal care products kind of everywhere now, whether it's CVS or Sephora or Ulta or department stores. How do you find the right partners? It's, I didn't talk about it in the first question you asked me about the industry and why it was interesting. But if you, as a now student of the industry, looking back, you know, over 15 years, what was so fascinating about it in the early 2000s is I would say it was an understored industry. What I mean by that, there was very little e-commerce, so that store didn't exist. Um, most brands, and I'm talking of a price point and higher, so ignore mass for a minute because you always had Walmart, Target, the drugstores. But if you look at prestige and luxury, the only place at retail you could really buy those brands was department stores. You know, call it Macy's on up to Bergdorf. And there wasn't that many 
of them, but that's where a product was was traded. That's where consumers went to buy it. You fast forward 15 plus years now, and I would say that an understored industry has probably become an overstored industry over time, which has ramifications for retailers and for brands. And so what do I mean by that? Sephora in the early 2000s was a failing concept. People were questioning whether LVMH was even going to keep it or sell it, and they closed a lot of doors. Clearly, they've done a remarkable job bouncing back. Ulta was a low-end retail concept that was trying to figure itself out, finally figured itself out, went public, promised the markets they'd open up 100 doors a year. Now they're over 1,000 doors and growing. 80 doors this year is the is the current forecast. Even Sephora just announced opening 35 doors this year. Then JCPenney comes along and rolls out Sephora inside. JCPenney, boy, that made a lot of sense when that happened. It was such an odd match. And they've got hundreds of Sephora inside JCPenney doors. And now you have uh, Space NK in the U.S. market. We own Cosbar, which is another specialty retailer. Beauty brands expanded too quickly, then went bankrupt. But you had this influx of specialty retail catered to a prestige and somewhat luxury consumer that didn't exist 15 years ago that got built very quickly. Then you have the third-party e-commerce sites that came on, the derm stores, the look fantastics, the cult beauties of the world. And so, oh, not to mention uh, urban outfitters and anthropology, which in some case, Lime Crimes in Urban, this works, one of our brands is an anthropology. And so you have those alternative retailers, Riley Rose now from Forever 21. So I can keep going, but we're going <laughs> to run out of time. But the point is the number of stores that have been built to service this category and the consumer is honestly borderline overstored probably at this point. So it's a dramatic change uh, of where we were when we started. Now, to answer your question, because of the tier of distribution and price that we tend to focus on because we know it better, and because of the growth we're seeing out of specialty retail, we focus on brands where there's a Sephora Alta angle, usually either a presence or an opportunity. Uh, department stores, less interesting, although for something like Revive at their price points, that is where the business is is uh, occurs. And so we're trying to identify those retailers that we think have the best prospects to grow long-term and have our our brands be there. And so the, the natural focus ends up in the Sephora Alta specialty world. Oh, did I forget home shopping too, right? And infomercials. So, yeah, I mean, there's there's just so many, so much access right now that we do have to pick and choose our partners wisely, not choose too many so as to, to ruin or dilute the brand value and be consistent with what the proposition of the brand is and the customer that's buying it. Rich, what about something like Nordstrom's, which has done a lot of innovation in their beauty and wellness categories? I know that this works is sold there. Why was that an interesting proposition for them? Well, you know, this works is a UK heritage brand seeking US distribution. And I will plug uh, ourselves on this works and I'll give the this works team a ton of credit. When we invested in that business in May of 2015, it was a small business for us, the smallest brand we've invested in, the smallest brand I've personally invested in as an institutional investor. But I said, that brand is the most on-trend brand I've ever seen. And people looked at me like, what? I've never even heard of it. Natural, clean, wellness, sleep. I mean, look at the market right now and everybody's coming after what this brand was doing three years ago. So it's our opportunity to stay ahead of it and be the innovator in the category. But to the team's credit and to our credit in some respects, we saw a really interesting 
brand proposition there and a unique unique story. Um, why Nordstrom? Because we're trying to build presence in the U.S. And so the brand has very low awareness in the U.S. And so if we can find retail partners that can help introduce the brand to the U.S. consumer, it's helpful. And I think Nordstrom has done a good, do- good job, as some other department stores have, in trying to reinvent themselves on the beauty floor. And so if you look at what Bloomingdale's has done to try and attract different consumers, Lime Crime's in their millennial section. Lime Crime's in Nordstrom in certain doors, too, as Nordstrom tries to attract a millennial consumer. Will that consumer ever consistently shop for beauty in those doors? I don't know, but I give them credit for trying. And as long as they're trying and our brands are consistent with what they're trying to do, it makes sense for us to try to participate. Rich, at the top of the conversation, we talked a little bit about natural, and now we're talking about wellness and clean. Um, What are some of the trends that you know, 15 years ago were not really trends that are really peaking now that have kind of become also oversaturated. CBD. (laughs) (laughs) Having just come back from Amsterdam two weeks ago. um, (laughs) No, listen, I think it's not going away. CBD beauty is going to be big. Um, I don't know how big and don't know how brands will play it. Will they play it as a cannabis brand? Will they play it as an ingredient that's in other brands? You know, if... um, Several of our brands are looking at it from an innovation perspective to see where we can incorporate the ingredient and the benefits without being a cannabis brand if it's consistent with our brand story. Um, and so we look at that clearly as a trend. Um, the natural and clean thing, you know, it's funny. You look at going back to the overstored retail. I forgot to mention Detox, Credo, Falane, and all the others that are just natural and clean retailers. And I think that's a tough position to be, actually, because there's probably a time five years from now where if you're not natural or clean, you're not on the shelf, right? That market movement is happening. Um, And so if you're a retailer that only sells what everybody else can only sell at some point, it's not really a point of difference. So we we watch that very carefully. But that trend is going to continue. And I think the ability to deliver clean ingredient decks and deliver on product performance, I think, is going to be key for everybody. Um, And so that trend isn't going away. This wellness word which again, this works was using as part of its story. Although they were British, they called it well-being. It's U.S. wellness. Um, that convergence is happening almost to the point where I don't know what's different, right? Beauty and wellness have converged in one of the same thing. Now, I think for some people, wellness still is like supplements and ingestibles and not necessarily topicals. Um, but this beauty wellness convergence is definitely happening. And I don't see that changing anytime soon as well. Um, and then the challenge will be what's next and we always challenge our brands with trying to figure out what's next so you know in the case of lime crime uh, they created in part the liquid lip phenomenon Um, they foresaw that consumers would want to wear silly pink hair at one point uh, and came out with unicorn hair they were first on the glitter movement that everybody else followed us so we're always trying to think ahead for that brand given its dna to try and uh, predict what might be next or create what's next through our through our innovation. So all I can tell you is five years from now, we'll be talking about something different. And that's the fun part of the industry. It's constantly evolving, constantly changing, new ingredients coming and going. And that's what makes it fun. Let's talk about cannabis for a second. Um, you know, a lot of major beauty retailers are a little scared of the regulation implications. For you as an investor, what are you thinking? When What are you thinking about those kind of rules and the farm bill. Yeah, it's it's too gray right now. I mean, I think we think, you know, the retailers are embracing it more so thus far, I think, through product innovation. So Milk Makeup might launch a product that has it in there. There's a few cannabis brands like Lord Jones that are now getting increased distribution. We carry that at Cosbar 
now because it's a trend we need to tap into. It, you know, Cosbar has the good fortune of being uh, heavily concentrated in California and Colorado, uh, where it's a little less gray from a from a selling perspective. Um, but we got to keep an eye on it. I think um, until it's fully resolved and people have great degrees of comfort and confidence that there's no regulatory issues, it'll always be kind of half a toe in, half a toe out in terms of investors, I think. Rich, a lot of beauty conglomerates, whether it's L'Oreal or Estee Lauder, are obviously Mm -hmm. investing and acquiring more companies at rapid paces. Um, Do you feel more competition in the space? You know, and it's not just that, right? (laughs) So, if the, the funny thing about private equity investing and what we're seeing in beauty right now, I think, is what I would describe as classic herd mentality. What do I mean by that? That means a couple of firms, ours included, have some successes. People see those successes, and then there's a capital uh, inflow into a space because we've told people there's something interesting about it by having successes. And so uh, there are more firms in private equity today focused on the beauty space than ever before in my career. And I, I joked with someone the other day when I started doing this in the early 2000s, um, you know, I was in a one-lane highway all by myself, and now I'm on the I-5 at rush hour in California. There's just no room. Um, but that's why we try to leverage our expertise and do other types of things that maybe others won't do to try to mitigate some of that competitive environment. And quite honestly, in several of the brands that we've sold, and we've sold three in the past three years, while there was beauty conglomerate or strategic interest in some of those brands, all three ended up being sold to private equity firms. And it wasn't because we like those firms and they weren't going to pay less than someone else. They, I mean, that they won because they were there with the highest price, and in some cases, more than strategic buyers. So while um, the competitive environment has gotten worse, I would say for us, it's much worse from a private equity perspective than a beauty company or strategic buyer perspective, in part because we play lower down, right? The size of the company we invest in may be too small for some of those corporate buyers, although they've done some smaller things recently too. But we kind of look at our role in the industry as taking this you know, founder-led brand, perhaps succeeding in spite of itself because of great product, doing what needs to get done to make it attractive and transactable to the next party. And we'd love that next party to be a corporate buyer if they're interested and it makes sense. But in today's market, the private equity firms have also been aggressive. So no question it's competitive. I don't see it changing that much. Valuations are high. With all the investments private equity firms have made in the past three or four years in this space, there's a pipeline of deals to be done in the next three or four, because that's the nature of the business. People ask me, um, you know, is such and such business for sale? And my answer is yes. Everything we own, by definition, is for sale. It could be for sale an hour after we invest. It just depends on the price. So we invest to sell. That's our business model. And by definition, something's always for sale. It doesn't usually happen that quickly. Um, But with all the deals done by private equity firms and therefore all the businesses that will be for sale at some point down the road, I don't see the level of activity slowing in the near term. So you don't think that investments are going to be coming down in 2019 or 2020? And I'd I'd like to think that the valuation environment may stabilize, um, but I think the number of opportunities available for investment in the foreseeable near term, call it the next year, I don't see changing. Thank you so much, Rich. It was great having you. It's my pleasure. And thank you for listening. We'll be back next week with another episode. A special thanks to Gianna Cappadona, the producer of this podcast. 
As a thank you for listening to the Glossy Beauty Podcast, we're passing along a limited time introductory offer on a three-month subscription of Glossy Plus. Glossy Plus members have access to unlimited content, exclusive research, and more. Join today for just $49. That's 80% off by entering the code INTRO at checkout. For more information, head to glossy.co slash subscribe. Before you go, be sure to sign up for our new Glossy Beauty and Wellness Briefing, a weekly newsletter that will keep you up to date with our coverage and analysis of these growing industries. Sign up is simple and easy. Just head to glossy.co slash beauty email to join today. We'll talk to you next week.